Hello. This is the recording of the third Twitter Spaces that I did with my friend V. This one was late February. At this point, we're starting to get a feel for the format and doing a bit more preparation in advance, so I'm not so phased by the questions. They're also getting longer. We allocate an hour when we plan it, and we're pretty much now hitting that target rather than falling a few minutes short. This session is on staying healthy while travelling, and I probably should give you a couple of content warnings in advance, including descriptions of foot injuries near the start, That content warning is purely for one person who may like to know that that discussion takes place between about 4 minute 20 and 7 minute 40 after the theme tune ends. And a lengthy discussion about diarrhoea towards the end. That's around 47 minutes and 52 seconds after the theme tune ends. I mean, it could be worse. I listened to a podcast called Not So Bon Voyage, which has a regular interview segment about that very subject. Usual disclaimer, be aware this conversation took place over the phone, so the audio quality won't be as great as my normal podcast episodes. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy it. Hello. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. That's not good. Well, I've just bent my elbow and realised there's a big scratch in it, as if I've just sort of scratched my elbow at some point, probably in the night, but I've only just noticed it. <laughs> well, that's, that's quite uh, on topic, really. <laughs> I mean, yeah, let's be honest. <clears throat> um, I don't know whether to do a little intro again. It's or... always, always helpful to do an intro, always helpful to do an intro. Okay, so for the benefit of anybody listening later, I'm Victoria Pearson. You can call me V. I'm just here to ask the questions so that it's not really boring listening to Barefoot Backpacker talk to themselves. And um, I'm here with the Barefoot Backpacker who travels beyond the brochure and goes to places so that you don't have to, with very little luggage and hardly ever any shoes. And I was going to say that you are at RTW Barefoot on all your social medias, but you're not because you're barefoot underscore backpacker on Instagram, and that's very annoying. <laughs> I'm barefoot underscore backpacker on Instagram. I think I'm barefoot dot backpacker on Facebook because they have different ways of doing things. Well, um, at least on Twitter and on Pinterest, you are at RTW barefoot, though, aren't you? If anyone has a better suggestion as to what to call me, given the character limits, then please let me know. That was just a, a name that we came up with in committee that seemed apt at the time that we never kind of... I've never been terribly happy with it, but I'm kind of, it's a bit late now. I mean, I've, I've been on Twitter for just over exactly eight years on that particular account. Yes, um, you're probably a little bit late to be changing your name now. <laughs> yeah, just a little, just a little. Okay, um, so today we are talking all about um, healthcare and travel. And um, last time we talked about travel planning and we sort of touched a little bit on 
planning for things like vaccines and stuff like that. But today we're going to be getting more into how to look after your health and general well-being whilst you're traveling, whether you're traveling beyond the brochure or going to sort of more, I don't know what the word is, standard places, touristy places. Either way, you you still may have health concerns that might be holding you back from taking your first trip. Who knows? Indeed. Um, so I'd imagine that for you, especially traveling barefoot, right, a first aid kit is a non-negotiable in your backpack, yeah? Um, You'd be surprised. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Um, hashtag not a role model. Um, so when, you, <laughs> when you've got your first aid kit, what is your go-to things to put in there for when you're traveling? I mean... I travel really light, so I don't tend to travel with uh, much in any way first aid kit, uh, but partly because I know I can get stuff when I'm there. It's not like I'm traveling in, in the absolute back of beyond. Um, there's always going to be some kind of chemist or shop where I can buy at least the basics. Um, and also, remember, because I travel only with hand luggage quite a lot of the time, getting things into the aeroplane if I'm flying they don't like you carrying nail scissors, for instance, and they don't like you carrying large amounts of liquids. So when I'm traveling abroad and I'm backpacking, I don't tend to take more than you'd think. I, I tend to take just, you know, a sort of a, a couple of plasters or, you know, stuff like that. Um, and hope that when I get to wherever I am that I can find something to rip the plasters with if it's a bandage or, you know, that. I carry tissues as well. Um, and obviously I've always got water with me. Uh, when I'm hiking in, in Britain, obviously I've got more scope to take stuff, so I'll take things like germaline um, because you never know when you might need – when you get – obviously I'm really dyspraxic, so the chances of me scraping some part of my body uh, and causing an injury is quite high. So mm. something like germaline is is a really useful thing for me to carry. Um, one thing I imagine do- that an infection could get quite serious quite quickly if you were far from civilization as well. I mean, an infection gets serious quite quickly, whether you're in civilization or not. It's just that if you're mm-hmm. in civilization, there's probably more you can do about it. Um, yeah. One thing I do carry with me at all times is a pair of tweezers. For oh, in case you get something stuck in your feet. Absolutely, which has happened on occasions. Um, but fortunately, it's it's easy to. I've I've now got the technique quite happily worked out where I can just r- remove things quite quickly. Um, have you ever had times when? Um, you really wished that you had a first aid kit and you didn't have one with you? Um, no. Um, but, I mean, when I did my hike across Great Britain in the summer of 2019, I uh, <clears throat> infamous, infamously ripped off one of my toenails because I'm impatient. Um, it wasn't intentional. Um, and I didn't have anything anywhere near enough to bandage that up. But... I was fortunately quite close to home at the time, and it wasn't just me and my hiking buddy Becky at the time. There were a couple of other people with us, Becky's friends, one of whom had a myriad of stuff in his car. And that was quite useful because, I mean, he's obviously really prepared because he goes hiking a lot. Um, So so if you don't have a first aid kit with you, it's a good idea to be hiking with someone that does. (laughs) Yes, very much so. I mean, I did have stuff with me, so I did have uh, bandages and... um, some um like antiseptic cream and stuff like that but for the injury that i did there is no way i would have been i would have even thought to carry some of the stuff that one of becky's friends had which was you know like 
toe-shaped plasters. It would never have occurred to me that even toe-shaped plasters were a thing. No, I didn't know. I'm surprised that you didn't know about those, though, given that you don't really wear shoes at all when you're out and about. <laughs> I would imagine that would be something that you would use a lot. Uh, you'd be you'd, you'd be surprised. I just never thought to look for it. Uh, I genuinely never knew that they existed. Um, so that was quite quite useful to know. I still I still need to buy some new ones of those because I did use quite a lot in that incident. Um, <laughs> it, it, for the record, it stopped bleeding after about a day. Oh, that's horrid. Yes. Um, Be- Becky, Becky was wondering if I would actually come back on the hike afterwards, but obviously I did because I'm made of sterner stuff. Yeah, and you'd made the commitment by then. The, the hike that you're talking about is the one where you um, went from the easterly most point to the westerly most point of the UK, is that right? Uh, of Great Britain, uh, yeah. Um, 57 days, half of it in the rain. That's a long time to be on the road. Yes. Yeah especially in bad weather and things like that. But I think we'll come to that a little bit later about how to sort of um, keep yourself happy and hydrated and all that sort of thing when you're on the road for a long time. But before we move away from first aid kits, has there ever been a time that you've been really, really glad that you did have one with you? Um, I mean, I've I've, sometimes when I go running, um, I take kind of plasters and tissues and because... I have dyspraxia. I will quite often scrape my toes on the pavement, which is how I turn it off in the first place, by the way. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's quite not by running. It was more complicated than that. But um, but yeah, so it, I, I, it's quite useful for me to always carry like tissues, at least with me around. Um, but in terms of actual traveling and backpacking, uh, I had one instance that we'll probably talk about several times on this trip, on this um, on this space. But. When I was in Southeast Asia and got, I'm going to call it food poisoning. When I was in Southeast Asia, I was very, very glad that my friend back in Britain forced me to take rehydrating salt sachets. Yes. Um, uh, I wasn't going to. And she said, you're going to need them. And I went, yeah, all right, whatever. Uh, and I did need them. And that was quite nice. Uh, they were blackcurrant flavor, unfortunately. But, you know, they were still quite nice. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose when when you're that dehydrated, you don't really care what flavour it actually is, do you? <laughs> well, no, the important thing is just to get it down, yeah. Yes. Um. So presumably another item that you normally have in your first aid kit, if you're going travelling, is bug repellent of some kind. Like, yeah. how do you avoid mosquitoes, ticks and midges to reduce your risk of Lyme disease and dengue fever and malaria and stuff like that? I would love to say by wearing long sleeves, by wearing trousers tucked into thick socks and by wearing sturdy boots. Of course, that's what that everyone does. <laughs> that would be, of course, what I would suggest to people to do because I'm not a role model. Um, yes. Uh, embarrassingly, I don't. Um, bug repellent. I do carry bug repellent um, and I carry it both when I'm at home and when I'm backpacking in certain parts of the world. Now, I don't always take it because there's quite a few places where I don't really need it. You know, uh, I, you don't tend to get problems in places like Lebanon or the Middle East and that sort of thing, I've noticed. And you do get it in Australia, but it's it's the really small, annoying midges that you just, that you just mm. accept. Um, but in Scotland and in Southeast Asia, I was carrying bug spray. <clears throat> Um, for different kinds of things. So I was carrying bug spray, citronella wipes, and in Scotland, I on the hike, I was carrying 
smidge um, a series of basically midge killing equipment. You've got midge, you've got lotion that you can wipe on you. You've got spray that you can spray around. You've got wipes that you can just, you know, wipe the tent with. Uh, mm. What I've noticed in my travels is that mosquitoes particularly like my ankles. It doesn't matter how much of the, of the stuff that I spray on myself. It doesn't matter how much I've got like citronella candles, anything like that. They will bite my ankles, and I have no idea why. Uh, I got very Britain in Lesotho, and I didn't even know you could get mosquitoes that high up in altitude. Um, but I got very badly bitten there, and my ankles really blotched up. I mean, you know, they're harmless in Lesotho. They're not going to, like, they don't carry any dangerous diseases up there, but it's still quite messy and annoying. Um, I was going to ask you if any of those bug repellents particularly work, but I'm guessing not on your ankles would be your uh, I mean, for the actual diseases themselves, uh, Lyme disease, uh, which is common in certainly in the UK and certainly in places that I've been hiking, which is why you should always wear long socks and trousers tucked into them when you're hiking over fields <laughs> out and sheep in them. Um, I've got a it's like a credit card sized tick removal device. Um, because the thing with ticks with Lyme disease is that you have to remove them in a certain way. You can't just tug them out. You have to like, yeah, because they can spit back blood yes. into you, can't they, and cause yes. health issues that way. But I didn't get a tick on that. Well, no, <laughs> I didn't notice if I got a tick. Um, Becky did, and my card didn't work because it was in such an awkward place. So just, she just used tweezers instead. Um, mm. See, the thing with ticks and me, and this is a problem with a lot of things to do with my body, is that I um, I never look for them. Um, mm. Partly because it feels like too much work and because I'm not very observant, then it's a lot harder for me to do because I have to concentrate a lot more and I mentally can't concentrate that hard on looking for things. So I generally just don't, which is really bad. I know. But <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just unobservant and easily distracted. So I, I, I mentally can't do the work. Now, if I was hiking with someone else and they were willing to, then I would have them look me over. Mm. Um, but when I'm on my own, I just kind of, I risk it. Yeah, risk it. and as this for, is why we are not a role model. <laughs> as for as for the others, dengue fever, you can't really do anything about dengue fever. You can't take any medications or precautions for them. Um, so the only way to avoid dengue fever is just not to get bitten. So you just don't go out when the mosquitoes carrying it are alive, which tends to be um, dusk and dawn. But I'm not a party animal anyway, so that's not so much of a problem. And as for malaria, I do have malaria tablets. I always tend to get them. Uh, I know that in certain parts of the world they're becoming ineffective. And that whole antibiotic resistance is a very, very big issue for the future that we're not talking enough about, I find. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but I, I carry them where I can. So if I was planning to go backpacking for the first time, where would I get malaria tablets from to take with me? Would Gen I have to buy them when I got there or would that be something that I could take from like the UK, go to my GP and then take on a plane with me? The, the malaria tablets I tend to have or end up with is, I think it's called doxycycline and it's an antibiotic. So you mm. basically just go to the GP and go, I'm going abroad. I need a malaria tablet. I need this malaria tablet. Uh, or actually, they might tell you which malaria tablet to need because there's like books and well, not books, but uh, material that says for this country, you need this tablet. Yeah. Um, 
uh, malaria tablets are quite fun because, as I say, some of them are um, like doxycycline is an antibiotic. So it, it has all manner of effects. But there's another, uh, I think it's called malarone. And for certain people, it gives them some very interesting lucid dreams. Hmm. I'm surprised that hasn't become a recreational thing then. It probably is. No, they, they, they are prescription medications. Yeah. Well, while we're at the DP, um, is that <laughs> where you would find out about what vaccines that you need to travel to particular countries and things like that? Um, I tendly tend to find that information at um, like the Foreign Office website. Um, but yes, the, the, for a lot of countries, your GP will know. I mean, some of the countries I go to, the GP has about as much knowledge of it as me. But in, in principle, they should know and they should have a list. How up to date that list is, that's, you know, not my problem. But um, yes, they should know and they should have a list of, for this country, these are all the vaccinations, these are all the medications that you need. Um, have you ever been somewhere and then realised that you did need a vaccine and had to obtain it while you were there? Uh, no. <laughs> Fortunately, what, one of the things one of the things for me is that um, I mean, I, the only vaccine I've ever had to get before I go is yellow fever. And yeah. I'm assuming that because of all the jabs that I may or may not have had at school and I've no record of what they were, I just assume that I've had them. Uh, I don't even know how you check this. Um, there's very little else that I need because there's very little else that needs that there is a vaccine for. Uh, I when I was looking around a couple of years back um, for certain countries, uh, there was a, a couple of them wanted a, a meningitis vaccine and a couple of them wanted a cholera jab. But as far as I'm aware, we don't offer them in this country anyway. And those countries that require them aren't countries that I, would, I had been planning to visit. And I can't even remember which ones they were. I think it was like Gabon or Equatorial Guinea or somewhere like that. That, you know, be interesting to go to, but not yet. Yeah. But I, I, I'm, I would just go to the GP and say, I'm going to these countries. Can I have the jab? And they might yeah, say that is probably a much better plan than turning up and hoping that you don't have to get jabbed at the border. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in some of those cases, you need the jab to get the uh, visa for you, you need yeah. to have proof that you've had the vaccination. Um, but I have had one instance in crossing from Burkina Faso to Benin. Uh, Benin requires yellow fever. It requires you to have a vaccination for it and proof of the vaccination for it. And I've got this um, vaccination booklet that yeah. I got it when I had my yellow fever jab. And it's ironically yellow. And I could prove that I was vaccinated. But the other of the other six people in that four seater car, um, only one other person had been vaccinated. So we had to lurk around in the hot sun in the middle of the day waiting for the other five people to get vaccinated in a shed at the border. Oh, so the moral of this story is get vaccinated before you go, otherwise everybody that has to share a car is going to hate you. Basically, <laughs> yes. Um, so how do you handle uh, like the admin for things like travel insurance and stuff like that? Because that must be quite difficult you, for you if you don't pre-plan your trips very far in advance. Uh, about 80% of the time I get my travel insurance online while I'm at the airport or traveling in the coach to the <laughs> your style of travel gives me the anxiety <laughs> <laughs> well the th right okay yeah but the thing is with me in travel insurance is that I I never really need to get fancy travel insurance the only thing I do that's in any way un 
like um, unstandard is is hiking over uh, two thousand meters tends to be the cutoff point. If you if you do any hiking over two thousand meters, you need an extra level of, of travel ad, uh, insurance admin. But, but you but do I, do I, other I, sorts of dangerous things. Like you did yeah. speak in one of our previous spaces about being held at gunpoint in Palestine and <laughs> things like that, which I would imagine makes you more difficult to insure. Um, that that's that's just to do with the location that I'm in, rather than anything else uh, and generally speaking the only countries where travel insurance isn't valid is countries that the foreign office travel uh, the foreign office have a travel warning for and this uh, it actually rarely happens it's possible palestine was one of them but it, it rarely happens to me in practice that i would go to uh, a country with a foreign office travel warning it happens a lot less than many of my friends think it does. Uh, I mean, obviously, obviously, I mean, with me, there's certainly the danger that the country might switch while I'm there. But, you know, uh, mm. I mean, personally, I'd say that the foreign office is sometimes a bit of a wet blanket about these things. You know, it's, it's mm. like, you know, they're, they're overcautious. But apart from, you know, visiting countries like Burkina Faso, which had a revolution through before I got there and was possibly yellow at the time, um, I am quite an easy person to ensure because I don't do anything dangerous. Like I don't do water sports uh, and I don't do those kinds of water sports either. Um, I, I, I don't do, you know, high adrenaline, high risk activities. You know, I don't, I don't do white water rafting. I don't do skiing. I don't do, you know. I can't imagine you bungee jumping. I would Bungee jumping is one of the things I, I have vowed never to ever do. <laughs> I don't blame you, to be honest. I don't see the appeal. But uh, I mean... I have a coil of rope tattooed around my leg, ankle, but that doesn't necessarily mean I want to go dangling off a bridge with it. Um, <laughs> like the most dangerous thing I think I do is, you know, drive on the back of motorcycle taxis. And mm. I did once call my insurance provider at the time, this was in Southeast Asia, uh, out of curiosity um, by saying, well, you know, am I going to be insured if I, if I ride on the back of a motor taxi without a helmet? And they said, if they don't have a helmet to offer you, then yes. If you have a helmet and you refuse it, then you're not insured, but you know, if they don't have a helmet in the first place, then uh, yeah, just be careful. <laughs> Which kind of makes you wonder how they would find out if there was a helmet available at the time or not. But well, uh, that's easy to do. They wouldn't find out. People lie, and it would be all fudged. And <laughs> um, we mentioned annoying bugs and diseases that you can get from them. Um, but do you ever have to look into other potentially dangerous wildlife before you go somewhere, like dealing with predatory animals like lions, tigers, bears, things like that? No. I mean, I got chased by a goose once. Geese are dangerous. Geese are dangerous. That has guard geese instead of their guard dogs, and they do a much better job. I, I, I agree entirely. Go geese and swans, they're, they're evil, evil creatures. Um, what about um, venomous things like snakes and scorpions and stuff like that? Have you ever had encounters with those? I've eaten them. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that that counts from like a, a health worrying perspective. But <laughs> they were cooked. They were cooked correctly. Um, I mean, in general. So, I mean, I, I've certainly been to places where you know wildlife has potentially been an issue you know might encounter a wandering monster in the dnd world as it were like you know i've been i've been hiking in in kyrgyzstan and in in china's sichuan province in the mountains but i've never encountered anything particularly bad i've been close to you know huge animals like elephants and crocodiles but only ever in what you might call controlled environments you know like yeah. i've been on, on walking tours with a guide or i've been 
uh, in the vague protection of a, of a of a big jeep. And you know, literally, I've been close to an elephant to be able to touch it. So if that thing had 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 wanted to ram us, it could well have done, but uh, it didn't. Mm. Um, but as for bugs and things, um, I've been to Australia. Uh, I've survived. Um, Were you mostly think, in the cities in Australia, though? Well, yeah, but then spiders tend to be in the cities as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, the snakes, the snakes are sort of like more likely to be found in the outback. But um, yeah, I've also never encountered one of those box jellyfish that are about three millimeters long and, and like cause you to go ag for an for an entire day. They're nasty, nasty buggers. Uh, yeah, but then okay. I don't go in the water, so that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> I saw I saw I saw a huge cockroach in a toilet room in Ghana. Um, it was about as big as my hand. Um, I didn't stay to have a poo. Um, but apart <laughs> from that, um, I've, I've just avoided them. I think it's just because um, I suspect, you know, everything runs off when I approach because I'm a galloping oaf. Um, <laughs> well, they're kind of scared of me, so they run off. I think yeah. I always take the view that certain creatures or certainly the bigger creatures only attack you if they see you as a threat. Uh, my policy is, you know, not to taunt anything bigger than a ferret. <laughs> I, could, I could probably do a ferret. I could probably have a ferret. I don't know. It could run up your trouser leg. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're a shorts person. Yeah, you probably could beat up a ferret. There was a, a, a question on Twitter saying, what, what's the largest animal beginning with your name that you could you could feasibly survive a fight with? And I'm thinking, possibly a badger? Could I, could I could I take on a badger? Absolutely, good thing you to think that they are, you know, badgers. <laughs> badgers are fearsome, fearsome creatures. They're ugly and, and just sort of, you know, big. But could could I do a could I fight a badger? I mean, I could run. Could I run faster than the badger? It's it's not it's not a it's not an encounter I particularly want to have because badgers are quite fearsome. But uh, you know. Given that, given that other creatures beginning with, you know, a bee would be you know, a bear. Mm. I, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to win a fight with a bear. We have become wildly off track here. <laughs> it's all to do with health and and, and stuff. It's, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Don't fight a badger. <laughs> <laughs> don't it might result in injury. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So have, having not listened to that and fought a badger when you're somewhere. Um, abroad how do you deal with language barriers if you're trying to obtain healthcare? I, I actually never needed to um quite fortunately because the only times I've ever needed to get any kind of medication from abroad has both been in, in nominally English-speaking countries uh it was in Australia and New Zealand and you know I was able to explain what I needed at uh, both times incidentally for malaria tablets because I procrastinated too much in Britain and didn't want to see my doctor. Because seeing a doctor in this country is, you know, I can communicate with my doctor by fax. <laughs> it, it would be useful if they moved into the 20th century, never mind the 21st. Um, yes. So I procrastinated, didn't, and then ended up having to go, oh, my God, I need to buy some malaria tablets in Australia and New Zealand. Australia was fine because all I did was I was staying with my friend over there and she just took me to her GP and we sorted it out. Uh, going to in New Zealand, I just had to find a doctor that was open to travellers. And the one I found was on the seventh floor of an office building in Wellington. It was an ugly little place. And when I was there, they looked at my yellow um, 
jab certificate and said, ooh, your tetanus jab is out of date. Here, let's jab you. Ooh, that, 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 that's a nice jab. Can we have 50 New Zealand dollars for the privilege? <laughs> yeah, right, fine, whatever. Um, so, yeah. Um, but, the, I mean, my yellow fever jab, for instance, I got that in Britain. And I got that in Britain because it was just, I'm not going to get that abroad, as, as we've said. But it was actually quite difficult to get hold of because no one were in the town that I was in at the time, Kirkby and Ashfield, no one had ever heard of it. And no one mm. didn't believe Kirkby and Ashfield, um, except for the one other travel Twitter account who lives there. <laughs> I, I've, I've never met them as far as I know, but there is another travel Twitter account from Kirkby and Ashfield. So they also do like backpacking and light yeah. travel and stuff like that. Yeah. Yes, yes, they're backpackers. They're, they're a, I don't know if they're sisters or they're friends, but there's, I think there's two of them. And um, yeah, they, they, they backpack. And I'm amazed. Yeah, so that was, that was an interesting experience, getting that. So sometimes it's not, even in your own country, it's not that easy to get hold of, because obviously nobody goes abroad from Kirkby and Ashfield, so they don't know what yellow fever jab is. <laughs> um, but apart from that, um, I've never had issues. There's, there's two reasons for this. One of them is because when I've had issues, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, um, when I was in Southeast <laughs> Asia and got food poisoning, I, it was like the last, my last day in Cambodia. Um, and then I had three nights left. One of them was in Singapore and two of them were in Dubai with my step cousin. So um, it wasn't a hassle. There was no point to me doing anything. It was like, let's just get home. It's fine. Uh, when I was in Mexico City, I had the same thing. It's like I, I got issues in Mexico City that we'll come on to later, I'm sure. And um, saving all of the crappy parts of the space for at the end. <laughs> yes, yes, very much so. And yeah, again, I, I, I suffered literally on the last day I was there. And then in Uzbekistan, I, we don't know how I did this. I broke a bone in the top of my foot. No idea how. Couldn't walk very well for a week. And I took the decision to come back home rather than spend an extra four or five days going into um, Afghanistan and back. So the reason I have never been to Afghanistan is because I broke a bone in my foot, which is one of those strange stories that people don't really expect. I'm surprised that you don't injure your feet more often, to be honest, because of travelling barefoot and being dyspraxic and dropping things a lot. I mean, the best, apart from the ripped toenail incident, uh, the best injury I had for that was when I was walking on Kinder Scout in the Peak District in, in Derbyshire in England. And I have genuinely no idea how I did this, but I've been hiking barefoot over the whole of Kinder Scout, you know, up, up, a, up a, a, a rocky waterfall over the moorlands, getting lost, getting stuck in bogs and then over the over the hills back down. And then on the final farmer's road, flat, completely flat, wide. I somehow managed to bang my right foot on the verge of the curb in such a way that it bent my toe back. Wow. It seems like you've been quite lucky in that most of your injuries happen in the UK or in English speaking countries where it's just really easy for you to obtain healthcare. Uh, yes, although I didn't actually get any healthcare for that. I just yeah. let it. I just, just yeah. oh oh my god this is this doesn't look right let's just not go to the doctor because that involves speaking to people uh, uh, and it seems to you know I, I've had no ill effects from it so um, hopefully it's fine. I wonder if you injure yourself more in the UK because you're more relaxed that you could get help easily in the UK. <laughs> Possibly, um, 
yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or at least mentally I go, this is, this is fine. This is safe. I'm, I'm comfortable here. I don't need mm. to worry so much. And then yeah. I worry a lot. You know, what my, you know what my most common injury is? Go on. It's banging my little toe against the shopping trolley. Oh, I'm not surprised, actually. Yeah. I mean, that happens often enough when you're wearing shoes. Yeah, there is, there is a simple solution to this. A really simple solution to stop me injuring myself. Can you guess what it is? Or do your shopping online? <laughs> that wasn't the answer I was expecting. But yes. <laughs> what was the answer you were expecting? Wear shoes. Uh, well, yeah, but I know you're never going to do that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, but. one of your um, little unique niches is that you are a Gen X traveller in a world full of 20-something backpackers. Um, do you have helpful wellness concerns now that you wouldn't have bothered you in your 20s? Like, for me, now that I'm over 35, I'm not spending more than one night that isn't on a proper bed. I need a proper bed, otherwise I'm not going to enjoy it the next day. Have you got anything like that now that you're a little bit of a more mature traveller? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I think partly it's that I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it as longer term as I used to. So while I can still do, you know, do things like um, sleep on trains and take overnight coaches and, and not sleep while I'm sitting on a, on a, on a coach with very little leg room, um, I couldn't do it like for days in the row. I could do it a couple of times, but I think when I was younger, I'd be able to do it for longer and I'd rather not do it at all. I don't do it that well, but that's just, I don't think that's an age related thing. That's just, a preference related thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've, I've also never been one for late nights and partying anyway. So I've never had that whole, you know, stay up late, get up early mentality. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, part of me still travels like I'm 26. So I still do the whole, you know, backpacker hostel thing. And the only, the only issue I have with backpacker hostels is that I'm six foot three. Uh, backpacker hostel beds tend not to be. <laughs> But since I generally sleep on my side with my legs bent anyway, it's never as much of a problem as you'd think. Mm. Um, I am particularly partial to a very good, to a decent mattress, though. So um, yeah. that, that, that's one of the luxuries. But apart from that, I don't think there's anything. I know that a lot of my peers, a lot of the people that are the same age as me, are very much different for me. But because I think because I have always had this tendency to travel the way I have, um, I've never known anything different, so I've never really explored it, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. like most, most of my friends who are my age are amazed at the way I travel. Yeah. Um, I'm younger than you, and the way you travel sounds exhausting to me. <laughs> um, but because you don't plan very much before you go, and you're not really a I-must-tick-off-all-the-things-on-this-list-of-things-to-do in this place kind of person that probably does help slow your pace a little bit, which might maybe be good for your general health and well-being while you're traveling. Um, possibly. Um, I mean, part of it is that I've got this issue that when I go to a place, um, I go to a place for specific reasons. So I have a kind of a tick list of things to take off, but those aren't, you know, standard touristy bucket list things. They're things that mean a lot to me. So as long as I do them, then it's fine. It's just, one of my problems. There have been times where you feel that you have had to rush through things and ended yes. up feeling rough because of that. Yes, yes. I mean, the thing is, 
because I have a really short attention span and I get bored if I stay in a place for too long, like three and four nights is, is maximum for me. I can usually see everything I want to do in that time. But what I've got to be careful of is that I, I take that time slowly because I am a very fast paced person. I walk quicker than most people I know. Uh, mm. So you know, I'll, I'll, if I'm pushing myself, I will happily casually walk a mile in about 14 minutes, which yeah. is ridiculously quick. Um, and I get issues with that. So, for example, in Mexico City, I went to like a couple of like 20 years ago. I was meeting a friend there and uh, who lives there. And Mexico City is quite high. I was going to say that it does altitude sickness come into that well, one. Yeah. This wasn't altitude sickness per se. Uh, Mexico, I don't know how high Mexico City is. I think it's about two and a half thousand meters. So, I mean, it's high. It's something that you're not used to. But it's not it's not high enough to cause excessive altitude sickness itself uh, in that sense. But what because it's high and because I wasn't used to it, I walked around that city and I did a lot at my usual pace. Yeah. And on my last day, that pretty much knocked me out because I was just knackered and my my body just went, nah, this is a bad idea. And mm. um, yeah, I had I had a fun journey back home on that plane. Um shall we say uh, and the other issue I, the only other issue i've had with altitude the highest i've ever been is about four thousand meters in china and in kyrgyzstan I, we went over a pass that was about three thousand seven hundred but we ended up camping at a lake at about three thousand two hundred the only the only issues i had were <clears throat> in china i had a mild headache and in kyrgyzstan i had you could tell i was at altitude and you know i could feel my breath and i knew i couldn't I wasn't going. I wasn't going to do a you know a twenty five minute park run, put it like that. Mm. Um, so I could feel it. So I'm, I'm altitude something I'm not complacent. I'm not going to be complacent about. I'm not going to push myself about. But I've never really had. I've never really been high enough for it to be notably yeah. a problem. Uh, at some point I will, but a lot of the places that are on my I want to go list aren't that high. So. Yeah. At some point, I will make it over 4,000, but I'm not. I mean, for example, Everest Base Camp is not on my hit list today. I have no interest in going there. And that's mm -hmm. the that's kind of one of the highest places that people would normally go. Yeah. Um, so altitude, I, I'm aware that altitude is a problem, but it's not one I'm, I'm going to uh, worry about. Where I do have an issue, uh, there is one in there is one time where it did really affect me. It wasn't altitude. It's heat. Yeah. Um, so. I went to Cambodia, Southeast Asia. This Southeast Asia trip is coming up a lot in this. Um, I went around the temples of Angkor at Siem Reap, and I'm guessing it must have been sort of the mid 30s degrees Celsius. And yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm walking at my usual pace, several hours, because these are very big temples and they're miles away from each other. So I was doing a lot of walking in the open air, in the middle of the day, in that heat, with no shade. I had a hat, but that was it. Um, most people would have just, you know, hung around with their taxi guide. No, I decided to walk it because that's what I do. Uh, while I was on my way there, I, I, I bought a lot of water and I bought a lot of mangoes from, like, you know, the people selling them at the entrances to each temple. Uh, evidently, not enough. So the last temple I visited, which I think was Bayon, which is one of the, you know, the really big famous ones, visited it at last. I have almost no memory of it. And then at the gate, waiting for the taxi back, nearly threw up nearly fainted oh, it was that's very very unpleasant 
what I did then was I went back to the hotel and I just lay on the bed for a couple of hours with the aircon on about Arctic. I bet you were glad to have aircon that day. <laughs> I have never been as glad for aircon as I was on that day, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, yeah, we are going to come back to water again in a minute. Yeah. But before that, um, you mentioned parkrun briefly then. Um, is that something that you keep up with when you're traveling, doing your usual sort of fitness routines and things like that? Do you still go running? And how do you like plan your routes and stuff like that to avoid getting lost and straying into unsafe areas, bad terrain, that kind of thing? Uh, parkrun itself, I've only ever done on my travels once. That was two weeks ago in Northern Ireland. Partly that's because a lot of the places that I travel to don't have it. Yeah, I was so going to say, I'm not sure how many places do have an actual park run. Quite a, well, quite a few, but some places that you wouldn't. So there's, there's about five in France. Um, I don't think Belgium has any, but like the Czech Republic has a few and then Poland doesn't. Or it's the other way around. Poland has a few and the Czech Republic doesn't. Um, Australia has a few. The USA has a few. Um, but a lot of the places I go to don't. So it's it's it very rarely comes up as an option. Um, but the other thing is... When I'm traveling, I tend to walk because I tend to walk around a lot and be active. I'm not necessarily only going to be running as well because that's just excessive and no one needs yeah. to have that much fitness. Uh, also, because I only travel with hand luggage, I only have a limited amount of clothing. Mm. And while I, I mean, the obvious answer is just to, you know, wear yesterday's clothes to do a running. But equally, I, I don't, I, I already do enough too much washing of clothes as it is. I don't want to pack mm. specific running clothing. Because that's what I'd have to do. I'd have to pack specific running clothing uh, mm. and then wash it. And that's or just spend all of your time scrubbing it in the sink. That's not very fun. Uh, no, I, I had an entire morning of that in Vanuatu, of scrubbing my clothes in the sink. Um, <laughs> quite fun and quite re quite relaxing. Um, but it was cold water. Nice. Uh, very mm. nice. Um, so yeah, uh, and obviously, you know, um, normal people would take running shoes. I don't because I don't have mm. any. Um, <laughs> And as for the terrain, I won't necessarily have the time or the opportunity to check it out so mm. uh, or maps. So it's like I would do when I'm walking, but I'm not going to necessarily do the extra effort when I'm running as well. Yeah. And so obviously, if you are doing a lot of walking about, especially in hot or humid places, hydration, really important. Um, yeah. So how do you keep yourself safe from waterborne diseases and parasites when you're traveling? How do you even check the quality of the water of a place before you go? The only way you can really check the quality of the water of the place is to ask people that live there. Mm. Um, uh, but even then, that, that, there is a caveat to that. So, for instance, I mean, for me, there, I, this, is a bit, this is a bit vague and generic, but I kind of assume that there are three kinds of water. One is this water is perfectly fine to drink. One is... I've got a filter bottle and one is nah. Um, <laughs> and, and some places um, like Vanuatu is a good example. So, for example, there's an island on Vanuatu called Ambry. It's got no running water. There are no rivers on that island. There are, however, at least two volcanoes. And the trouble is the locals in the villages, because there's no fresh water supply, they just get rainwater tanks. So all the water that falls out of the sky, they collect in tanks and then they use that for everything. Because yeah. Ambrun is so volcanic, that water has got very strange and very specific mineral content. Mm. So the people that live there, the water's fine. As a foreigner, I'm not used to that water. Yeah. So 
that water might not be safe for me to use. And that's the sort of thing that, you know, you need to be aware of before you go anywhere. Um, mm. I, was in, I was in Lebanon and staying in an Airbnb. And my Airbnb host was surprised that I was drinking the water from the tap. But I was drinking the water from the tap through my filter bottle. Yeah. Because I, as far as I'm aware, there was nothing excessively dangerous about the water in Lebanon that a filter bottle couldn't switch. Mm. This is uh, at odds with somewhere like Burkina Faso, where you just don't. So what do you do in places where you just don't? Is it just um, a case of buying bottled water all the time while you're there? Yes, um, unfortunately. Uh, in Burkina Faso, uh, well, actually the whole, across the whole of West Africa, they have these water sachets, uh, pure purified water, I think it's called, 500 mil plastic sachets for about five cents. And you can get them everywhere. Like literally there are people walking the streets carrying uh, big tubs full of these sachets. So it's really easy to get hold of and it's really cheap and it's really useful. Uh, the downside is the environmental cost of it, but that's yeah. a whole different pod. That's a whole yeah. different space. We'll that's probably do a space on um, eco-friendly travel or something in the future, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that, that is definitely not eco-friendly travel, but there's no feasible real alternative, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Um, a couple of people I've met en route have... Uh, done things like uh, iodine tablets, um, which purify the water. It takes a while to do. I think it's about like for a, a, like a big bottle of water, it can take up to an hour. But that's what they, they use. They have an advantage over things like life straws and filter bottles. Then, uh, like, uh, do they clean the water more, or what? What is the advantage of using that over something more instant? I suspect it's just because it's smaller, so it's easier to carry. Um, oh, yeah. And all, I don't know. I mean, because I've never used an iodine tablet, so I don't know. But one of the issues that I have with some of the filter bottles is that because of the design of the bottle, you can't get all the water out. Mm. Uh, have you ever been really careful with your drinking water, only to forget and then eat like salad or ice cream or something like that that's washed with the water or made with the water or not refrigerated really well? Uh, not knowingly. Um, but if you think about it, I'm not actually the target market part of those foods. Like, I don't really <laughs> eat salad um and i don't really eat ice cream um hot drinks hot drinks hot drinks are good in practice you know so like a good hot chocolate would be safe uh a bit weird yeah. to be drinking in the middle of cambodia but you know i do it and beer beer because that's the whole point of beer it's designed oh, to yeah. yeah um but you like to eat local when you're traveling don't you um I so do. how do you avoid getting digestive issues from introducing just new foods into your diet and things like that I don't think you can. Um, I mean, it's a bit like Russian roulette in a way. Uh, it's like you might get sick, you might not. But the only way mm. to guarantee to not get sick is to not eat it in the first place, which is kind of not the point of travel. Like, yeah. um, I, a couple of my friends from way back, they're a married couple. I call them the most boring couple in the world. They went to Germany for a, a week. I love that. <laughs> um, this, 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 their average food is chicken nuggets and chips. Uh, mm. I went, I went, I went. That they went to Germany for a week and they had McDonald's every night. They had McDonald's every night except one. The one night they didn't have McDonald's, they had Burger King. Mm -hmm. The reason was because they wanted to eat food they trusted. Now, I'm thinking it's Germany, but equally, yes. I mean, it's fair. It's like, you know, if, if you're not used to foreign foods, then it doesn't matter where you're going. Um, but yeah, for me, you can react to anything that you're not particularly used to, I suppose. Yes, but yes. 
Um, but in terms of eating local, what I would say is a couple of things. Make sure the food is cooked. That'd be a good start. Uh, like properly cooked. Mm. Eat at popular places. Uh, eat where the locals eat, because, you know, unless it's a particularly cheap joint or the people in that village or town or city have all the imagination of, you know, the inhabitants of Kirkby and Ashfield and think that Weatherspoons is the height of sophistication. The locals, <laughs> they'll, they'll, you know, they're always going to be eating there. The tourists may come and go, but the locals will always be there. So any place with, you know, bad hygiene and dodgy food, not going to survive that long. So if yeah. the locals are eating there, it's almost certainly safe. I would also say to try and train your stomach to cope with the food before you go. Because, you know, mm. some places' cuisines, they're heavy on the oils, other places are heavy on the spices. So if you're not used to, like, the style of cooking, then something even as simple as, you know, a plate of fries would might leave you icky afterwards because of the way it's cooked or what they've put on it as a topping. Yeah. Um, but I think for me, because I cook for myself at home a lot and, ver you know, vary my food, I have all manners of different styles and flavours myself when I'm cooking – I'm kind of used to most of it, so I'm kind of the wrong person to ask that question because I'm, I'm kind of I'm going into the environment already being used to that kind of food in a way. Yeah, so I suppose that is actually quite a good tip for somebody that is thinking about traveling somewhere for the first time is, you know, see if you can introduce some of those foods into your diet a few weeks yeah. before you go. Then it's not a massive shock to your digestive system. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um Oh, there, there, I have another point about water, by the way. Okay. So I go hiking a lot. And mm -hmm. obviously I'm, I'm going to be taking fresh water from like streams when they're available. Two principles. Only take water from streams that are flowing. Don't take it from stagnant pools. And only ever take water upstream of cows. And villages and things, I suppose. Uh, yes. I mean, obviously when you're hiking in the middle of you know, England or Scotland or what have you, cows are, cows and sheep are the most yeah. important things, but in, in other places like Vanuatu, yep, villages. Um, yes, and, oh, and, and, and carry hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer is your friend. Mm. Right, so we've, we've come perilously close to it, and so obviously we have to discuss it. We can't talk <laughs> about food safety and water safety without talking about getting the shits while you're somewhere and <laughs> um, what do you you do a lot of camping a lot of wild camping things I like do. that how do you handle diarrhea when you do not have access to running water i'll be honest it's never happened you're just like the luckiest traveler <laughs> <laughs> right so um right there's a couple of things here uh, when i'm hiking i tend to eat less than i should so there's less to come out Again, um, not a good role model thing to say. <laughs> not a good role model. Not a good role model. Um, also, uh, my biggest hike was the one across Great Britain. It was 57 days. And I did not do an outdoor shit at all. Because I managed to take advantage of pubs, campsites, public toilets, all of that sort of stuff. I had an outdoor mm. wee. I had an outdoor wee across the English-Scottish border. But in, in terms of... Um, Which side are you standing on? I was standing on the English side. Uh, that's rude. <laughs> well, I mean, mo most of the border that we, most of the time we walked across the, along the border, it was we. The path is on the English side of the border. Um, so, before you organised your great big hike, did you think about things like toilet facilities, or were, yes. were you just lucky in your route in that you didn't have to take an alfresco poo? No, no, no. We, we thought about it. It was one of the things we considered. And my hiking partner Becky has an entire blog post on how to shit while you're uh, while camping. Um, <laughs> So it is, it is something that, that we were aware of and we were fully prepared to do. It's just that I 
didn't end up needing to. So you ended um, up like needlessly carrying a trowel around with you for 57 days. Oh, uh, well, I didn't carry the trowel, but yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I mean, the thing is, when you're hiking, and certainly when, when we were hiking, we were generally carrying at least two litres of water with us anyway each. Yeah. So, because that's what we're using to cook. That's what we're using to drink. So all it would have meant really would heavy, be, though. Yes. Yes. If you think about it, like one litre is one kilogram of water yeah. at room temperature and pressure. So when you're already carrying a backpack that's like 17, 18 kilos and you've got two litres of water either side, Mm. It does add, but it, it you have to. It, it's kind of. I bet you finished that trip a lot stronger than you started it. When we started that hike, every time we took the backpack off, it felt like we were floating. <laughs> By the time we reached Scotland, and the end of the Pennine Way has a really steep bit on on the last day to Fort William. Everyone that we passed was struggling with day packs getting up the hill. We were running up that hill. Yeah. So what is what we, is we, the we, worst? We actually calculated uh, how many calories we'd need to eat to to maintain our our weight for that for that trip, and it we worked That's, out that, that we, must have been driven from Becky. There's no way you were that organised. <laughs> I, I can tell you the exact place time we had that conversation. Uh, it was in a pub, and I was just on my phone idling because I couldn't be mithered with the conversation. It was very very definitely a Becky driven conversation that one. <laughs> um, but we calculated that I'd need something like five to five and a half thousand calories a day yeah because of the I, extra stuff that you're doing and carrying and that how many calories did I eat not that much so what is the very worst place that you've had an attack of diarrhea when so, you're traveling <laughs> right and this is this is where we go back to all of the um all of those all of those things so I had three, right? I've had, um, I mean, mainly, mainly on many of flights and, and stuff like that. Um, but in China, um, I think partly because I exerted myself at high altitude, I ended up with a couple of days of being quite squitty, including one day on a train where I was both squitty and constipated, which is a really, really inconvenient thing to happen. Um, but I know why that was. a load of our listeners away with that little bit. That made me laugh. Just as soon as we mentioned diarrhea, loads of people just left. Sorry <laughs> about it. <laughs> we did warn them. We did warn them. Um, <laughs> yeah. What I think about China uh, is obviously they've got squat toilets. And at the time, I am I'm still not very good at squatting because uh, I don't have the body strength. They're easy if you've got handles to hold on to, like in the Middle East. But uh, on this train in China, no handles so it's like i really want to go but equally i can't go because i'm not comfortable that was a very <laughs> very unpleasant um so yeah there was that um there was uh in southeast asia the time when i got food poisoning from little tip local food really good and all that advice i gave it's really great here's another bit of advice do not eat fish from a market in cambodia at midday when it's 33 degrees Celsius. <laughs> I don't know why you thought that would end well for you. <laughs> because I was passing with squid. I was passing it. I thought we liked it really nice. So I had a bit of squid uh, and uh, it did not end well. Um, <laughs> it did not end well at all. Um, but as I say, it was my last day. So um, I was just really bad for that. And then I, I was dosing out on rehydration salts in Singapore. And then I was in 
Dubai for two days with my step cousin and just made sure I wasn't that far from the toilet. And so the only time where I, ha- only time where I sort of felt the need, we were in a museum. So it was really easy just to wander into a toilet and go. Um, so, yes. Um, and as I say, Mexico City, where I overexerted myself in altitude, I was basically dosed out to the high heavens on um, diarrhea prevention medicine for the whole of that flight back. I don't even fault. But that did lead to the probably the worst toilet I've been to for a long time, which of all places was Coventry Pool Meadow bus station. I just knew it was going to be somewhere in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> it, was like, it was one of those instances where, oh, my God, this is this is the toilet. Right, I just have to. I really need to. Um, so I, <laughs> it, was, it was an unpleasant place to have an unpleasant experience. Um, yes. <laughs> Presumably, though, when you're traveling, you don't want to take up loads of space in your bag with toilet roll. Um, no. So tell us what are the best and the worst emergency toilet paper substitutes? Oh, so the worst, the worst. Uh, that's easy. That was uh, it was in China. It was on a bus ride through a part of the country where there wasn't much around um, needed to go. Uh, so I ended up in this you know, weird overgrown stone building with a hole in the ground. Um, it was a designated toilet, but it, if it was in Britain, it would be described as abandoned and it would be one of those urban explorer visit places. Uh, mm. I had no toilet paper. It had no toilet paper. I had to use the rubbish on the floor to wipe with, oh, um, which the best I could find was some really dodgy looking scraps of newspaper. <laughs> but you're some... very glad that you had your hand sanitizer after that. Oh, yes. I mean, when I say scraps, I mean, they were literally about the size of my palm. Oh no! Yeah, and there weren't very many of them either. I, I basically, I just, I just mopped up what I could, and then just, you know, yeah, this is not going to be a comfortable journey back, but it's all I could do. Um, so that's the worst. So uh, what's the, the best, best Luro substitute? Okay, the best, the best is absolutely one hundred percent Arabic. Uh, right. predominantly Arabic. It's not just Arab. It's not just the Arabian countries that have this, but it's the Arabian countries that have the best of them. Um, places like the UAE and Lebanon. Uh, it's the shower bidet. Mm. Ever come across a shower bidet? I've I've seen a version of them that you mm. can buy from UK toilets called a bum gun. Is that the same sort of thing? Like exactly a water pistol attached to your toilet. I, I, I want one of these. I think these are great. Basically, if you've never come across them, it's basically a handheld jet of water. You fire it like a gun and it shoots a jet of water up your bum. They <laughs> are amazing. And they are even better when you have the squibs because when you've got <laughs> so toilet- it pulls you down a bit as well. <laughs> well that as well but also think of it like this so when you've got toilet paper and you're you've had an incident shall we say it's basically wipe 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 pull another bit wipe pull another bit wipe half the roll later it's tolerably clean right and then you've got mm. a blocked toilet because it's full of toilet paper shower bidet 10 seconds clean as a whistle it's brilliant and no blockages as well no blockages, just a wet floor. But um, I mean, they have wet. They have like sort of floors designed for that purpose because they're all sort of like ceramic. Uh-huh. It's great. Um, so it's so like yeah. a wet room. Yeah, basically a wet room. So I mean, they, they are fantastic. It's, it's really, really, really simple. It's like you know, oh my god, my bum is really dirty. Squirt. Ooh, nice and clean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it it. it it's it's great. I, 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 because they're predominantly in warmer places, you don't even have to r- worry too much about drying off because you just do. I mean, yes, but 
obviously when you've had a jet of water shoved up your backside, um, mm. it's going to take a bit of drying. Even, yeah. Because you're, what you're not going to want to do is just stand there with your, your, your kecks down, waiting for your bum to dry so you can pull up your trousers <laughs> and the soggy bum. Um, so you're being comfortable for like the first 10 minutes. But yes, absolutely. Right. Well, on that crappy note, I think we've <laughs> pretty much gone through all of our um, health and travel chat. We do have a lot to say about mental health and travel as well, but we will save that for our next space because we've been chatting for about an hour now. Um, in the meantime, if anybody wants to catch up with the Barefoot Backpackers Adventures, you can go on barefoot-backpacker.com and there you can find blog posts about different aspects of travel and also the archive of the Beyond the Brochure podcast hosted by Barefoot Backpacker. Um, and as I said at the beginning, they are at RTW Barefoot on Twitter and Pinterest and Barefoot underscore Backpacker on Instagram. Have I forgotten a social network that you're on? I mean, I'm on Facebook, but I always forget about Facebook, so don't worry about that. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> you, I mean, you dot backpacker on Facebook, I'm aren't sure. you? Yeah, I can never remember if it's dot a hyphen or a dash. Um, and I'm also on YouTube. But again, I haven't really done a lot about YouTube yet. That will come in time. Yeah, we'll get to that soon, won't we? <laughs> if I can steer you away from TikTok for long enough. <laughs> I'm not on TikTok. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> um. Right. So, yeah, I, I still don't know how to end a spaces. I feel like I'm ending a phone call each time. <laughs> well, I, I shall do it then. Okie dokie. Right. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Have a lovely day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited, and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, Bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash traveltalesbeyondbrochurepod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.